0: Thanks for welcoming me. I'm grateful for that. I, I have not started on uh, the sermon yet for Sunday. It's Colossians 2, I think. So you can pray for me about that. I realized this morning I hadn't put together the worship uh, our worship order yet and uh, sent the sent those texts to our worship team. So I need to do that still. And um, uh, and I got uh. Um, Texts coming in because I'm a pastor uh, like you and uh, or a ministry leader and uh, in St. Louis and uh, right now I have uh, that was a really good salad man that is a really good salad so I have salad really good salad breath as I'm talking that's important to think about that when I open the scripture and we talk I'm doing it with really good salad breath I come from St. Louis, I'm wearing tennis shoes, and I have more acne on my face in my 40s than I want to have. And uh, I have a little bit of coffee breath from this morning, and some of you right now are starting to feel like I'm wasting your time. And uh, it's no waste of time to speak truly to each other uh, with who we actually are. Uh, And to remember that when you pray, you pray with coffee breath. When I I have had 20/20 vision all my life, I turned 40. When I turned about 44 or something, suddenly I had to wear glasses to read God's word. So that's why I have these on. And um, I'm trying to say that uh, I'm a co-laborer with you as a fellow human being. And uh, the greatest threat to my ministry has been forgetting that I'm human. And I'd like to suggest that the greatest threat to yours is the same. Because all the other stuff comes from that. Um, All the other big, big threats that we talk about. But there's one underneath it, and it's being the fact that I'm Zach, son of Vern, son of Jan, from Henryville, Indiana. And I always will be. Where are you from? I'm Zach, son of Vern. Who are you? I'm from Henryville, Indiana. Where are you from? Uh, that's just a part of who you are as you speak about God and seek to do things for His kingdom. And uh, so to remind ourselves of this kind of thing, I'd like to take us to a familiar passage. It's in the end of the book of John. It's a story you already know. It's where the Lord Jesus is restoring Peter. And uh, as we turn there to John 21, I'll say a prayer, and then we'll just look at the Lord together. Lord, thank You for Your faithful kindness to us. Thank You for everything good and noble. thank You that Your love hasn't quit. I thank You that You enjoy a good salad. I thank You that You give us good food to eat. Even if it's a piece of bread, He won't give us a scorpion or a stone or a snake. And thank you, Lord, for your care for each one of us, the boundaries that you've set for us, the places where you've given us to dwell, the names that you've given us, the languages that we speak and that you understand. We thank you for everything pleasing, good, noble, true, right, hopeful, full of love, faith, gentleness, patience, kindness, everything full of self-control, everything gentle, Everything of your spirit, we give you thanks and praise. We ask now that your spirit would minister to us, that we would be brought to you. Encourage your servants, we pray. Amen. So you know, uh, the thing I loved about Peter earlier on in my life was that he preached and 3,000 people came to know Jesus. And I thought, that's it, right there. I want to be a person who preaches and 3,000 people come to know him. And heck, in just a little while after that, 2,000 more came. 5,000 people the beginning of the book of Acts come to know the Lord Jesus. Here's the thing I overlooked. Uh, that's the only time Peter preached a sermon like that with that kind of result. As far as we know, never happened again. And uh, he would have had to deal with that. And the other thing about that is that Uh, that's not the first moment we encounter Peter, as you already know. Three years before that, he started a seminary with Jesus, started a missional training with Jesus. And uh, you know what? Jesus did not let Peter teach. Peter didn't get to lead a house group. He had no leadership responsibility. As a matter of fact, I'm just reminding you of what you already know. None of that group did. They had to follow Jesus and watch. Jesus taught. They watched. Jesus fed people. They watched. Jesus told stories. They listened. And then, by grace, Jesus would explain. At night, they're sitting around together. He'd explain some of what those parables meant. Because they'd scratch their heads and say, I don't know what you're talking about. And He'd tell them, Well, the sower of the seed is me. The Word of God is coming forth, Right? Eventually, I'm just, eventually, they got to do one act of service. It's when Jesus fed the thousands. Peter and the others got to hand out bread and fish that had been multiplied. Eventually, they went out two by two. Jesus was very explicit about what those 70-something disciples were to do. Very explicit. They weren't to take this and that. They were to go to certain places. When they went to a town, they had to say certain things. If the town received them, they were to do certain things. If the town didn't, they were to do certain things. And then that group came back and they reported to Jesus everything that happened. I'm trying to say that for three years-ish, prior to that Pentecost sermon, Peter was in training. And... Uh, he didn't get to lead. The first time he got to lead, it was with a partner on a very specified mission with a lot of feedback and talking at the end of it. And then there's this. The rooster crowing. I just skipped over all that when I'd see the sermon with the 3,000. And... Uh, I want to remind us of how Jesus recovered Peter's humanity from John chapter 21. He's an inexperienced, Peter is an inexperienced ministry leader at this point. He's handed out fish and loaves, you know. He's gone out with the 72. He's not taught a lot. He's watched a lot. Processed a lot. And he was more faithful than I am. And it's part of that faithfulness that made him such a boneheaded screw-up sometimes where he had just said in front of everybody, I don't know if you're Philip or Bar- Bartholomew or if you're one of the Marys or, and Peter just says, hey, everyone else is going to forsake you, but I'm not going to. I don't know. I don't know if I'd like him very much at that point. But that's what he said. Now I'll bring you into what you already know, but may not have seen for a while. Peter recovering Jesus' humanity. Here's what I say about this. In John chapter 21, verse 1, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. So very specific. This is the way Jesus revealed himself. And Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, right? They're all fishing. They're going fishing. And Jesus meets them there where uh, he's fishing. Now, I know we often say, Peter just went back to what he knew. But I'd like to put that positively. Of course he did. What else would you do? You go home. You do the work you know. So Peter goes back to where he's from to do the work he knows with his dad, I assume, in the family business. And... That's where Jesus comes to meet him. By the sea. There aren't many seas where I live in St. Louis. It's kind of funny. The name of our church is Riverside. We're nowhere near a river. I guess about 20 minutes drive is the Mississippi River. But Jesus comes to where Peter is. With what Peter knows. With where Peter's from. Lots of memories there. Peter grew up there. I grew up in Floyd's Knobs, Indiana. Just down from Henryville. Where would you grow up? I could drive Buck Creek Road with my eyes closed at night, I think. Where would you grow up? Peter went back home. Jesus meets him there. Where was home for you? If uh, you thought Jesus had died and everything he promised wasn't true at all, where would you go? You left the ministry. Where would you go? Peter goes home. Jesus meets him there what happened jesus reveals himself in this way and i want to say i want to suggest you don't have to agree you can set set it up for yourself i just want to suggest that everything goes on in this chapter is on purpose the first thing that happens is peter's fishing and he can't catch any fish and you start to read this and someone from the side says hey you caught any fish? No, I haven't caught any fish. Why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I've heard this somewhere before. And uh, this is how Jesus and Peter, among the ways they first met, early in the Gospels, remember? Peter was fishing all night, couldn't catch any fish. Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side. Peter said, okay, Lord, if you say so. So many fish come in. Peter doesn't know what to do. He looks at the Lord and says, Go away from me. I'm an unclean man. Do you think it's an accident that Jesus is recreating a scene from Peter's life when they first met? Do you remember when you first met Jesus? I mean before you had anything to do with ministry like Peter. When he was just a fisherman. Ministry wasn't a part of his life at all. Vocationally so. He wasn't even thinking about that. Do you remember the first time you confessed to Jesus? Go away from me. I am an unclean person. So they cast the disciple whom Jesus loves, and when they got out on land, the uh, or disciple whom Jesus loved said, Hey Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I just feel like we've seen that before. All right, the first one is secure and solid. It's a certainty we've seen that before. This one just is an illusion. It's just the language. Stripped himself, threw himself into the sea. Just sounds like Peter has a way of leaving other people in the boat when it comes to Jesus. And jumping out of there. What a highlight that was. A moment. Where he walked on water. highlights for you. I mean before he sank. It wasn't just that he sank and needed the mercy of Jesus to save him. He actually stepped out of that boat. There are moments you have stepped out of the boat. What are they? Jesus is meeting with him there. When they got out on land... They saw a charcoal fire in place. Oh, man, oh, man. You know, there's only one other place this Greek word is used in the New Testament. The the word charcoal fire is only used twice. Do you know where the other time it was used? Just before the rooster crowed, Peter warmed himself by a charcoal fire. Now, I'm just asking a question. You just threw your net on the other side of the boat and you're thinking to yourself, man, I think I've lived this before. You see Jesus, throw yourself out into the sea. I don't know how Peter could ever throw himself out of a boat when it comes to Jesus and not think of an earlier event. You come to Jesus and the first thing you see is a charcoal fire. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. Bread and fish are next. You know, uh, those guys who were on the, that tr- troop that was on the road to Emmaus, I'm just reminding you of what you know. They were on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize Jesus till he broke bread. I, I you sort of think that's strange. I, I don't think it's strange if you were there when he took a few scraps of bread and a few fish, and multiplied it for thousands. I just, I think that would change the way you see Jesus take up bread from every point on. You got the charcoal fire, worst moment of Peter's life. What is that for you? It's the worst ministry moment. And it's the worst moment as a human being. When Jesus denied even, when Peter denied even, knew Jesus. Loaves, fish. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Ooh. There's a couple of things going on here. Number one, let's just imagine the scene. I mean, it must have been a glad reunion. You know, I mean, the resurrected Lord is there. You thought He had died. Matthew 28, the Great Commission tells us that some are still doubting, so they're still trying to sort it out. He's with them. It must have been that kind of thing like long-lost friends. You've seen each other and you tell those old stories. You know, you quote from Office Space or you quote from Monty Python, depending on your generation, or you, you quote from the major... Whatever it is, and you tell old stories about what happened, and you, everyone's sort of laughing. <laughs> And then there's that moment where the laughter dies down. It's kind of awkward. You're not knowing what to say next. You're trying to think about what to say next. I imagine it as a moment like that. And then Peter breaks, or Jesus breaks the silence. He was sort of looking at everybody. Now he zeroes in. Hear this again and see if you pick up how startling this would be. And Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? See, we're so familiar with it. I'll just say it one more time. And Jesus said, Simon, son of John. I wonder how long it's been since Jesus called Peter by his first name. His the name he had before he was in ministry, the non-ministry name. Simon, son of John. Couple years? Some of you are more would be better than I am at the historical timeline. You could tell me. Uh my, my wife Jessica calls me babe. I don't feel like a babe except when I'm around her. She calls me babe. 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 Hey, Zach. Whoa. Whoa. Zach. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Haven't heard that in a while. Simon, son of John. Boy, that would get your attention. I'm Zach, son of Vern. Who are you? Before you had a ministry name. Back when you prayed and there was nothing about ministry to it. The Lord just heard your prayers because He loved you. And you prayed because you loved Him. You didn't have any thought about success in ministry. You just loved Him. And He knew you by name. And you knew him by grace, because the shepherd knows his sheep by name, every one of them. I always think of that when Mary is at the tomb weeping, and she doesn't know who he is until he says, Mary, says her name, <gasps> Rabboni, which means teacher, I'm Zach, son of Vern from Henryville. I'm just trying to ask you who you are before ministry when you were Simon, son of John and you had never preached a sermon and 3,000 people came to know you. You had hardly ever taught at all. What is Jesus doing bringing Peter back home? Reminding Peter of his best moments with Jesus and his worst And now calling him by his original name. I don't know if it's a good thing to be the son of John. Simon, son of John. I don't know. Did that bring Peter pain to be identified with his dad? Some of us it would be. Or is it a good thing? I don't know. It's just a fact though. Simon, son of John. And then the question. What have you done for me lately? Nope. Nope, that's not it. How big is your ministry? Nope. How much better are you than the others? Nope. Simon, do you love me? And you know the three questions Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And you know the three denials. And uh, some people uh, who I'll be in heaven with will disagree with what I'm about to say. But I just commend it to you. You can figure it out before the Lord. See what you make of it. But in the original language, you see, the the words change. Do you remember? Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's this agape word, this unconditional love. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I flail you. It's brotherly love. Second question, Simon, son of John, do you unconditionally love me? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you, brotherly love. Third question, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Peter's hurt. I don't know how else to describe Peter's hurt. unless I had just humbled myself to admit, you know, I do not have the kind of love you're talking about. But I do have this kind of love. And then Jesus says, okay, do you really have that kind of love for me? And he's hurt. Oh, man, and it's in front of everybody. Just like he had stood up in in front of everyone and said, I'm different from everybody else. I'll never leave or forsake you. Now in front of everybody jesus is dialed in i'm thinking i'm quiet if i'm bartholomew i don't think i mind at this moment that i'm one of the forgotten ones you know what i'm saying uh if if you're one of the twelve what makes you think you're peter james or john if you're one of the the faithful disciples Women with the twelve. What makes you think you're the one of the Marys? You know what I mean? Like, what if you are Bartholomew? And uh, you're the one that never gets to go where the other three go. Jesus is looking at the twelve of you. He looks right at you. And then says, Peter, uh, James, John. Again with Peter, James, and John. How do I get into that circle? I'm thinking if I'm Bartholomew, I'm not going to write anything. No one's ever going to talk about me. History won't even know what happened to me. But I was one of the twelve. And I'm thinking when I get to talk to Bartholomew, <laughs> I'm going to say, Bart, what was that like? To be with the Lord because once upon a time when it was just Simon son of John that's all that it was about being with the Lord and Jesus is recovering him to that question love do you love me do you love me do you love me and then we have to think about that word love. It's defined for us elsewhere in the New Testament. Love is patient, love is kind, right? Like the full resources of love. Not like, Peter, do you have happy feelings toward me? Peter, are you able to say my pleasure? Peter, are you a- are you able to be nice to me? But When Jesus talks about love, he's the guy that lays his life down for people out of love. This is like a a robust, vigorous, full-hearted, thoroughly devastating love. Peter, do you love me? Not, do you want to use me to advance? Peter, do you want to leverage me for your platform? Do you love me? Do you love, 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 love? I'm all about it love. Peter, I love you. Do you love me? I want you. Do you want me? Simon, son of John. Zach, son of Vern. Dr. S. Wine. Zach, son of Vern. Award winning author, Zach, son of Vern. You see, he brings us home and he meets us there. And on purpose, He reminds you of greatest moments with Him and your worst. He calls you by name and He calls you back to love with Him. To be in love with Him. Have you said that in a while? From my tribe, okay, my tribe would critique the way I'm saying it because I'm using in love. I'm in love with Jesus. My tribe would criticize that. Shouldn't talk about being in love it's love, you know, something like that. He blesses me with the kisses of his mouth. The psalmist says, Have you talked like that in a while? You remember before all the ministry stuff? Jesus is recovering you and recovering me. And he brings us, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. The qualification for ministry is. Love. I can meditate on that for about six more months. Remember what Peter said or Paul said later on? He talks about the primary ministry gifts in First Corinthians thirteen. If I can speak powerfully, if I can speak in the languages of the you know tongues of men and of angels, he's using hyperbole whatever you believe about those languages, he's saying, okay, imagine, you have them. Now what? And then he says about deep theology, if you know all mysteries, right? If you have profound faith, if you can move mountains, right? If you're very generous, you give away all you have. If you are a martyr, you are burned for your faith. All of that. Without love is what? Nothing. There is hardly anyone in our culture that will tell you that. Our ministerial culture doesn't talk like that. You know what it's like to be with a person who's gifted with speech, and they're in a moment like this, and they speak powerfully, and you think, wow. But then the people who know them, like on the team, They're like, nah, there's not a lot of wow there. What? Because they don't experience love. Or a person has great faith. Maybe that's you. And there's just this trail of pain that you've left behind you. Because the awesome thing is you can look right at darkness and say, light! That's your gift to us. And I need you. I'm a melancholy person. I need people of faith. But man, great vision and powerful faith without love just wrecks a team, wrecks a church, wrecks people. Oh boy, and the person, people who give a lot, if you sacrifice a lot and you don't love well, you are hard to be around. Hard. Because you're always judging people. I just want to remind you, your sacrifice is not the measure of my life. The sacrifice of Jesus is what measures my life and yours. So sacrifice, martyrdom, being burned at the stake for the gospel could be meaningless if it wasn't out of love for God, neighbor, and enemy. Who was doing that to us? That's where the gospel is so different than radical terrorist view of things, isn't it? The view that you, you strap your, a bomb on yourself and blow up neighbors and God will love that. What Jesus taught directly opposes that. You could do that, no love. That's a fool's errand. Well, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I'm in love with Jesus. That's what we learn to say with the psalmist. And remember, those psalmists, when when David talks about love for God, I mean, he's a manly man, you know. He, like, cuts people's heads off, you know. And so, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, what's amazing about that (laughs) is that the next thing that happens is that Jesus says, follow me, right? That takes a full circle. We're all the way back at the beginning by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, when they first met, back there right before the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, it's all about love, and it's all about following. And do you remember what Peter does? He hears a rumor about John. That John may or may not do this or that. And so he gets distracted already and asks the Lord, What about John? Peter then says, Don't worry about John. He says a lot stronger. You follow me. You follow me. Someone ask you questions. Is there a fellow in ministry that you're worrying about? Could be sitting right at your table with you. I don't know. And you're getting distracted from love for your Savior, feeding sheep, and following because you're comparing, trying to figure out trying to finagle, trying to wonder. Isn't it a freeing thing that Jesus would call you by your first name, not your ministry name, and say, Hey, follow me. I'll take care of him. You entrust that person to me. You, your job, follow me. Follow. And in in some ways, the ministry is just so basic. Love, follow. Feed. (laughs) In other ways, uh, the conditions of our cultures really want to make a mess of that. I was giving a... Let's close here in a little bit. I was giving a talk i was being interviewed i'd won an award and was being interviewed and uh you can still find that interview online and this was some years ago i was talking about preaching the gospel and culture and um yeah it's a fine interview yeah uh here's the thing if you ever were to find that interview with preaching today with michael Didaway, and you listen to it and if i said anything you thought was cool or helpful or whatever here's what you need to know I gave that interview in my pajamas in a I was sitting in a bathroom I had lost about 30 pounds I was losing hair my eyes were red and my nose red from crying so much and I was and I I'm a protestant but I was at a benedictine house out in the middle of nowhere Missouri And I look back on that and I think, you know, if we didn't have the technology okay, and we had to meet face to face, I would have either had to boldface lie or cancel, right? But because of the medium of, you know, a podcast, I could offer my gift and veil myself. And what I've been discovering through Jesus' discipleship and what we see here in Peter is that the Lord won't go along with that for very long. Not if He loves you. He will take you home. Show you a charcoal fire. Break bread, fish. Call you by your real name before you were in ministry. Ask you about love. Be willing to sting you. Not harm you, but hurt with this love question and recover you to following Him. After that, the man preached a sermon. and 3,000 people came to know him. And after that, The man was hung upside down. I forgot about that part too when I was younger. That sermon. Ah, the crowds. For God. You know. But really it came down to a question. Would, did Simon, this guy named Simon who was the son of John from the Galilee region. Who did not speak English. Did he love Jesus more than his life, and that he loved people. And that's at the end of the day when you and I stand before the Lord. I just don't think he's going to ask the question, how many people came to your church? I don't think so. Here's why, biblically, because when there's the sower and the seed and the 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 fourth soil makes it through the, the seed, makes it through the first three. And then they bear fruit. Some bear a certain amount. Others bear another amount. Others bear another amount. Remember that? Or, biblically, the talents that Jesus gives, or the minas, right? With the talents, he gives one, he gives three, he gives five. He doesn't he wasn't bothered. He wasn't saying we got to get this guy with 1 to produce like the guy with 5. We got to move from 1 to 5. He just wanted to know did the 5 produce with the 5 they had? Did the 3 produce with the 3 they had? And the guy with the 1, all they had to do was faithfully use it rather than bury it. He didn't have to be like the five. He didn't have to be like the three. He didn't have to produce like the five. He didn't have to produce like the three. He just had to produce with what he was given. Man, that's such a different measure than my daily life. So, Peter was just Simon, son of John. And he preached a sermon. 3,000 people came to know Jesus. But before that, he barely taught. He had to watch a lot and learn. He made a ton of terrible mistakes. And as far as we know, a sermon like that never happened again. Finally this. The roosters didn't leave Jerusalem. The rest of his life, he would have heard roosters crowing. How do you get through a trauma response trigger like that? Without the grace of Jesus calling you by name. Calling you to himself. Let's pray. Lord, here we are sticking our big toe into this ocean of grace of your word, this truth. We ask that you would make much of it that you'd multiply it in our lives. For each one, let it be like baskets of bread that you're walking around at each table. Give to each one of us as we have need. We ask it for your name. Amen.
1: I'm going to ask Zach a couple questions. If we've got time, how much time do we have today, roughly? Okay. And then I'd love for you guys to jump in with some questions. Um, This book, Imperfect Pastor, that... That Zach wrote is filled with some pretty amazing quotes, and he juxtaposes several things. And one of those things is, we all have great desires and ambitions for ministry. We all want to be efficient. We all want to be effective in ministry. We want to do great things for God. But then what, it, what does that mean, and how do these desires that we have um, work out in real life in ministry? I want to read a quote and just interact with you for just a second. This one, I just have gone back to time and again. He, he wrote this. As you enter ministry, you'll be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can. But take note. And, and this phrase is throughout the book. It's this idea of doing famous things as fast and as efficiently as you can. But he says this, take note, a crossroads waits for you. Jesus is at that crossroads. Because almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. The pastoral vocation, because it focuses on helping people cultivate what truly matters, is therefore no exception. Why? What are these mattering things meant for our desires? These small, mostly overlooked things done in the quiet when nobody sees, these are the mattering things you say in this book and in and, and many of your talks and so forth. Like, what versus the fast, the furious, the famous, the efficient, like, what are these mattering things that we're usually we we really don't want to do we want the fast and the the famous but what are are these mattering things that that truly are most important
0: that's a wonderful question Uh, so uh, things that matter that aren't typically valued so the beauty of the Lord the fact that he's beautiful in Psalm 27 you know uh, the king said one thing I have asked that I would seek that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life uh, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord gazing upon beauty and we remember David's not like Moses David didn't hear the voice of God speak directly to him so and the, the, the temple at that time was probably a tent you know so David's going to a tent in the wilderness or something and he's he's going to gaze at God's beauty Gazing is this quiet activity. Another way of looking at that is this word behold throughout the Scriptures. Lots of things we behold. So it's pausing to look at. And I think to gaze at the beauty of the Lord isn't very efficient in getting something done in a day. Uh, And so really things that go along with that um, uh, talking to the Lord Prayer and uh, uh, valuing things that the Lord values. So, so when the disciples are out there and they're looking at these people with all this money, the influencers and everything, and their eyes are over there, Jesus sees that and he he pulls their attention over here to this widow with a coin, and he says, "I tell you truly, it's her." <laughs> you know, and there's the contrast. So the willingness to spend time with a widow who has no networking power and no way to support financially your ministry uh, is an act of faith and uh, an act of following Jesus that radically changes my day. If, if, I, if I think that way, that Jesus did not, um, that our Lord Jesus often avoided the famous. Uh, they always kept coming out to him, because <laughs> he wasn't going to them, uh, and he went and to those um, Jews and Gentiles who had no clout. If I think about that uh, on an ordinary day in Webster Groves, in St. Louis, Missouri, and I say. Who are the, the networking influencers in my church that I serve? Uh, and then I set that aside say, who are those that need a shepherding care? Um, I need to be forced to ask that mattering question. And a, a lot of us aren't requiring that of each other. Uh, and so that's another mattering thing, just the care of people who have nothing to offer us. Um, they we can't leverage them in any way. Um, that's a mattering thing. Uh, all kinds of things: uh, uh, joy and patience, the fruit of the spirit, are mattering things. And uh, the the glad enjoyment of of good of a genuine relationship, uh, whether it's a friendship or a family relationship or a marriage or Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing better than for a person to enjoy their work, to enjoy their drink, to enjoy their food, to enjoy the wife of their youth. This is all from the Lord. Um, I tend to read into there, except for pastors, you know, or except for ministry leaders, because we're about kingdom business. And it's like, no, no. Um, ministry leaders can chase after wind, too. And so these mattering things of, of cultivating. Uh, kingdom things like relationships and beauty, love, uh, empowerment, encouragement to those who don't have influence to offer. There's a lot more to say, but those are some thoughts.
1: Yeah. We uh, we pastors t- seem to be most uh, susceptible to this idea of celebrity, this idol, of celebrity, this idea of being all... All things to all people being in all places at all times and that kind of thing and you talk in your book a lot about being localized ministering to ordinary people in ordinary places over a long period of time and why do you think why do you think the pastoral vocation is so uniquely it seems to me so uniquely set up for this idol of celebrity and desire to be famous big fast communicating to all people and all so forth
0: there's a lot to say, but I think part of it is just the, the cultural idols, the idols of our culture. Like if missionaries came to us from somewhere else, like friends from New Zealand, you know, if they came, uh, they would point out uh, our idolatry of celebrity. Um, uh, we have to have what we want when we want it. We are committed to or arranging our life in such a way that there's no discomfort. And... Um, And so the people that we serve have those assumptions. And so they bring those assumptions to us. So it's in our heart, but it's also in the people we serve. And so uh, the the three temptations, primary temptations of a ministry leader that I talk about are uh, wanting to be everywhere at once, I, I draw this out of the Garden of Eden and the whole thing that goes on with Satan and the temptation of Adam and Eve, but wanting to do it to be be everywhere at once, to know everything and to fix everything. And when we say that, we just describe the character of God. He is everywhere at once. That's omnipresence, and he knows everything, which is omniscience, and he can fix everything. He's omnipotent, and. Um, and I think we're trying to find a way to say to each other, I'll just say it this way, listen, remember, you don't have to repent because you don't know everything. You have to repent because you've tried to know everything. You don't have to repent because you can't fix everything. You have to repent because you're trying to. You don't have to repent because you can't be everywhere at once. You have to repent because you're trying to be everywhere at once. You see, only God can fix everything, know everything, and be everywhere at once. And if you and I are trying to do all that for a congregation, they don't learn how to depend upon Him. You know, they they have us. And so we always come through. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to workaholics right now. Restaholics, it's a different issue. Um, but... Uh, and so I think, I think those, those things are in our culture uh, depending on your economic uh, status, you know, economic um, resources that are available to you. If you're serving in an area where there's an abundance of economic resources, then people are just accustomed to ordering a half-calf with coconut milk and, you know, whatever. And so with it's just – and I'm no different, so we just bring that. And so that just creates a whole environment of how to measure what's success. And um, and that makes it tough on us. Any questions? Yep. Um, So in terms of, let's say, that's a great question. It's just a deep one. You know, there's a lot to say, uh, to think about together for several months. Um, But we want to pursue great things for God. We just got to make sure we define greatness the way Jesus does. And so, see, he would pursue that widow and call it great. Very few uh, around us would say that same thing. Um, And so the key story for us to meditate on is when James and John come to the Lord and they say, hey, we want you to do whatever we want. You know, remember that? And let's take them at their best. They're just trying to trust Jesus' teaching. He said, ask whatever you will, it'll be done to you. So they say, okay, we want to be at your right hand and your left. You remember that? And so our Lord doesn't rebuke that. He welcomes that, but then he corrects them. And then he gives a case study. The correction is he says, you know, the Gentiles do this, which is frightening. Because what Jesus just said is that you just use God language to do what everybody does. To lord it over others and be great. And then he says, it won't be so among you. It won't. What it will be is that to be the greatest, you'll serve the least, Right? Then the next thing that happens is he takes them to blind Bartimaeus. They're walking by, and uh, Jesus had asked uh, James and John, what do you want me to do for you? He gives the same question to Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? Same question. The insiders, you know, got that question. The one who seems like an outsider got that question. And so the first thing I'm getting at is Jesus is spending time with blind Bartimaeus, not with Caiaphas. And why is that? That seems like a waste of time. Um, another way of thinking. So, what does Jesus uh, say a great thing is? A great thing for Peter. Peter would be if you would love me. That would be a great thing. And if you would follow me, that would be great. You know. And so we got to help each other recover what greatness is. Um, because our culture is really informed by a white-collar business mindset. And I'm not critiquing white-collar business at all. I'm saying it's an apple and an orange. It's two completely different bottom lines, two completely different vocations. Um, and so if, if I have to be, uh, if I'm working with money, then uh, efficiency uh, and quantity really matter. It's just that most of the time Jesus isn't very efficient in what he does in the soul of a human being, um, or we might want immediacy and relief, you know like in an emergency room, and we need that. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to the matters of our soul, Jesus always offer, he's not always bringing immediately relief, you know and so if you remove immediacy relief, efficiency, and quantity as measures of greatness. What's left? <laughs> you know? Well, what's left is what What do I have to offer you then? My personal presence? My conversation? The resources that I have, you see, are spirit-given human resources. My time, my presence my prayer, my offering you the hospitality and welcome of Jesus, uh, hearing you, like really hearing you, so that you would go away thinking, man, he heard me. I don't think I believe in that God of his, but he heard me. You know, like uh, to believe again that those kinds of things are great will radically change the way that evangelicals tweet and write on Facebook. It would radically change how we measure one another. So, for example, in our church, uh, for the last seven years, seven and a half years, you know, uh, like I would say, you know, my my best sermon is heard by seven, with 75 to 80 people. We've had a numerical jump in the last year and a half. And I uh, was saying to the guys earlier, and some of that is no good. And so to have a some kind of measure that, that's different than quantity yeah, is a part of the greatness thing. So, you know, we got to meditate on that for six months or a year together. But that story, what do you want me to do for you? What true greatness is? we got to pursue greatness, but it has to be the way Jesus defines it. A lot of times we, we assume great. greatness. Uh, I'll say myself. A guy like me, a white American from the Midwest, Uh, who has some means I just always assume economic means as a given so like to have a powerpoint presentation assumes a certain amount of money you know or to, to have lights in the first place and then ones that work assumes a certain amount of money uh So without realizing it, the things I think have to happen in order for a church to be successful, uh, the Bible just doesn't assume I need those things the way I do. That doesn't mean I reject them and I'm curmudgeonly. No, not at all. It's just that uh, what is greatness after all? So it's in there, those words that we're sort of ruminating over right now. It's in there we have to help each other think about what true ambition and greatness is.
1: Another another question right over here. Thank you. On the other part, from India. Yes.
0: Yes. Uh I wouldn't read the book, but I will do it Okay. Thank you. Um, I I am attempting to address that question. And I think we need your voice and a, a whole collaborative global Christian voice uh, from the Scriptures to think about this. But um, I can just... Maybe I would speak experientially. The difficulty that I have... That some... Uh, is that we can move from one church, we, we can advance uh, like a career. I start with a smaller church, then I move to a bigger thing. Some of us have that option, not not all of us, not the majority, but we can move to a better, and so our our ability to pay for kids' college, our ability to get braces, you know, our ability to watch Netflix, whatever it is, you know, is gets tied in with our calling. And because of that, there's uh, a great deal of blessing in it uh, because a worker is worth his wages, but there are numerous traps in it. And I think you're hinting at that, the traps that we have. Um, That a calling as a pastor, uh, we are uh, ministers of the gospel whether we have a position or not. It's it's who we are. Uh, Just like in a local church, an elder or a deacon, you recognize them usually beforehand, before they have the title, because they're already demonstrating, you know, the gifts of such a person. So I would love. I think we we would want to hear from you and from others, you know, how to think even more about those blessings and traps, uh, and how to think through that together. Yes. 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 Sort of yeah, so when I started speaking today, um, I started with uh, salad breath, and that's on purpose. It's really not for you so much as it is for me. Um, and uh, I I say, Zach, son of Vern. Not just for you, but for me. If we weren't looking at this passage, I would have told a story about my mama and my papa from Henryville. Or I would talk about uh, Jessica, I did, babe, right? Or I would tell you my oldest is 22 and my second is 19, my third is 13. I, I would talk to you about Ty Sweeterman or Joe Farrell or Greg Stokey or any number of dear folks at, and their families at Riverside Church. The reason I do that as an intentional practice is because usually if I'm speaking somewhere, one of those people are with me. In this case, they're not. And so, for my for my um, protection and yours, I seek to, I try to practice grounding myself in what's true of my story, uh, so that I somehow can speak from there, rather than whatever whatever, I don't know, uh, appearance I may believe about myself or that someone could think, you know, positively or negatively. So that sounds strange, but I think as a, as a regular communicator of the gospel in a local place, I think it's the same. Uh, practicing conversations that are rooted in creation and providence, not just redemption. Or another way to say it is redemption includes creation and providence. Our bodies are being redeemed. Um, the, the fact that you play the piano or the flute is being redeemed. You know those things aren't aberrations somehow. God hates flute playing. He's just bearing with it until the new kingdom comes. No, you know it's not like that. And so, to to talk about physical things is one practice. I, it sounds strange, huh? But uh, in in my my. Uh, The circles that I'm in are so soulish that that spiritual equals soulish. Um, We cannot move off of that. We must embrace that fully, the soul. I'm just... But I need place, a theology of place, and a theology of physicality. So otherwise, when Paul says, you know, when we came into Macedonia, I mean, that's a local place. Why are we supposed to care about Macedonia? They don't even speak my language. You know, I got to learn about Macedonia, you know, and uh, uh, we ha- our bodies had no rest. That's the physicality. Why is he telling that? Telling us that except for the fact that he assumes a body is supposed to have rest. He's letting us know this is hard. Our bodies have had no rest. Fighting's within, fears without, afflicted at every turn, circumstances. So just as um, I'm, I'm hinting at uh, a, a practice that we don't talk about as much, and that's just the the practice of physicality as a ministry leader, so that I am reminded that my kingdom work includes the redemption of grapes hmm. <laughs> and, you know, spinach and uh, calloused hands from playing a guitar, you know, like... So there are plenty of other things to say. I I do write in the book uh, something called The Four Portions of a Day. And in connection with a weekly rhythm of an actual 24 hours off, those two things are practices I highly commend and need help growing in myself. But the physicality aspect I went ahead and highlighted uh, for us.
1: Zach, uh, thank you so much for your time and being with us, brother. And I just want to I want to tell you guys, like, what a gift it is to me as a, a local pastor. Whenever I hear right things celebrated, whenever I hear uh, the right definition of ministry, the right definition of discipleship, I I walk away feeling so discouraged and or encouraged in my work. And and that's not always the case. When you're in a competitive environment where you sense like uh, it's about me being better than you, that my church must advance, that your church is better than mine or whatever, and that we're in competition with one another, that's discouraging. We walk away incredibly discouraged from an environment like that. And so I'm nearly always leaving this room at Surge Lunch just highly encouraged that that you together are defining ministry properly and discipleship properly and what it means to walk together as a, as a body of Christ here in Phoenix. So hey, it's 2017, it's a new year. Let's keep doing that for one another. Let's keep lifting up proper definitions for what kingdom work is. Let's keep lifting up proper definitions for what it means to love Jesus together in our city, to not be about a particular church, about the church, and that God's doing great things in Phoenix through the Holy Spirit in a variety of ways, in a variety of different spaces and places throughout his work here in Phoenix. So I thank God for you, Zach. I thank God for you all and what the Lord is doing in your work. He's pleased with you. Christ is your is your savior, you're his child, you're his son and daughter and as we go today, remember that,